Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here and to speak this morning and so grateful for Bob and Jeff and for um, the other pastors and dear friends that I have in Sovereign Grace and, and new friends that I've met just over the past 24 hours. So thank you for having me and I look forward to opening God's Word. I invite you to turn in God's Word to Psalm 119. A couple months ago, I was at the Shepherds Conference in California, John MacArthur's conference, and Mark Dever was preaching on Psalm 119, and he told us to turn there, and he started reading it, and he kept reading it, and he went through the whole thing. (laughs) It was actually quite powerful. He made a point that you've probably all heard sermons on Psalm 119, maybe preached to them, but have you ever heard it all read? And if the Word of God is what we say it is, shouldn't it be powerful just to be read? I'm not going to read it, but Mark did, and I thought it was a good move. But what we are going to do is you're going to want to have it open because you are going to be flipping to dozens of verses throughout this long chapter. This, as you know, is the longest chapter in the Psalter and the longest chapter in the Bible. It is a song of praise for the Scriptures. There are 176 verses over 22 stanzas, and as you probably know, there are eight verses in each stanza, and within each stanza, each verse begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you see them marked out probably in your Bible. So the first eight verses all begin with Aleph, 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 and then Beit, 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 Gimel, 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 all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. We see over and over again these almost synonymous words used to describe the Bible, the law, the testimonies, the precepts, the statutes, the commandments, rules, promises, word. They all speak of God's verbal revelation to man. You can find at least one of these words in 169 of the 176 verses. So almost every single verse has one or more of these words. They may have different shades of meaning. One may refer to what God wants or what God appoints or what God commands or what God has spoken, but they all center on the same big idea, God's verbal revelation. Psalm 119 is among other things, a love poem. It's a love poem about the Bible. Now, I bet there are a few of you, daft Englishmen, who have tried your hand at a love poem or two in your day. I admit, though I will not disclose, I tried my hand at poetry once. I was young in love without children, and uh, had time to do such things. And I imagine quite a few starry-eyed young men or women have cranked out some poetry when they fall in love with that special someone. And some love poems are quite exceptional. Shakespeare's Sonnet 116, Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh, no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth unknown, although his height be taken, 
Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within its bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. That's good. In the category of not as good... I found a young man who posted some of his poetry online. He posted this, uh, I won't give his name, but he wrote these, he said, when he was a sophomore in high school. Look, there's a lonely cow. Hey, cow, if I were a cow, that would be me. If love is the ocean, I'm the Titanic. Baby, I burned my hand on the frying pan of our love. But still, it feels better than the bubble gum that holds us together, which you stepped on. So, <laughs> it's a lot of powerful imagery. He has another poem called Mustard. Girl, you make me feel like gum on the bottom of a desk. You see, scholars later will really dissect the gum imagery so rife in all of his poetry. When you touch my nose, I'll never forget the way you eat your Frosties. I need your love to keep me warm like the fires burning inside of us, pushing us over the edge of insanity, keeping us so close together in heart and yet so far apart in miles. Also true. One more from this young man called The Purse of Love. It's very short, but I think you'll agree, powerful. (laughs) Girl, you make me brush my teeth. Comb my hair, use deodorant, (laughs) call you, you're so swell. You know, there are probably some some young women in our churches who would appreciate at least that much from the young men. Brush your teeth, put on deodorant, call me. Now, part of why high school poetry is so terrible, besides the avalanche of mixed metaphors is that few people are instinctively good poets, let alone at 17 or 18. But the other reason it's so painful is because if you were to look back, even some of the things you wrote, you might find yourself embarrassed by the exuberant passion, the extravagant praise, the -the over-the-top language, and think, man, I was really head over heels in love, and oh boy, I can't believe I said all those things. It can be sort of awkward to read such unbounded enthusiasm, unbridled passion to the heights and to the depth, especially if maybe the relationship never worked out and you never did get to share a frosty together. (laughs) I wonder if we ever read a poem like Psalm 119 and feel a bit of the same embarrassment. Look, for example, at verses 129 and following. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant 
and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Now, if we're honest, we read that and it, it almost seems like that over-the-top high school poetry. It seems a little unrealistic. Really, psalmist? Your, your mouth is open. You're panting. You're weeping streams of tears because people do not obey the law. Really? One of three gut-level reactions strike us when we read Psalm 119, besides the reaction that this is really long. One, your heart may soar and cry out, yes, yes, yes. It's so true. It's right. Or second, you may not be particularly moved. Maybe you're tired, distracted. Maybe you're spiritually dry. Maybe you're having one of those mundane days and it just sort of passes. Maybe the preacher's boring. A third reaction, more serious, you could say in your heart, yeah, right. You wouldn't say it out loud, but you'd say it in your heart. Look, I like the Bible, try to read the Bible, got nothing against the Bible. But really, all true? Doesn't the Bible have mistakes, or, or maybe even you, you read, you're willing to put it in the category of all true, but you say, really, all relevant? Some of it's pretty confusing, kind of boring. I've tried to base my whole ministry on the Bible. It doesn't work. I need something else. The purpose in this sermon is to convince you, and hopefully you don't need convincing, that the Bible makes no mistakes, that the Bible can be understood, that the Bible is not boring, but it may have boring people to read it, that the, boring, that the Bible is the most relevant thing you can and should and must read every day. I want to show you how the psalmist approaches the Word of God and how he responds to the Word of God. I want you in particular to notice Three things. So we got three big headings here. I want you to notice what the psalmist believes about God's word. Second, what he feels about God's word. And third, what he does as a result of what he believes and feels about God's word. So we're going to get what he believes, what he feels, what he does. So if you want to go from head to heart, to hands, to actions, to mouth. What do you do based on what you believe and feel? And if you do not see yourselves doing these things, perhaps it's an indication you don't really believe and feel about God's word, what the psalmist does. So what does the psalmist believe? We see he believes that God's word is true. You see this in any number of verses. Look at verse 42. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Turn over to verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. There's a limit to all perfection. No matter how much you love your church, love your husband, love your wife, love your Premier League team, no matter how much, okay, there is a limit to all perfection, not to God's word. 
It's all true. Look at 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Verse 160. The sum of your word is truth and everyone, everyone of your righteous rules endures forever. It can be hard to know what is trustworthy. You have a professor, you have a teacher. You have to be discerning. Even if you do trust, you, you may not know, can I believe everything? Politicians. Now, I'm not going to presume what your politicians are like, but I'll just tell you what ours are like. You can't always exactly trust them. And then you have fact checkers to check what the politicians say. And now you have fact checkers to check the fact checkers. So something is not quite right here. And, and I don't want to really ruin your day, but did you know you cannot trust everything you read on the Internet? I saw an Internet poll that said 70% of the things can't be trusted. It's true. You can't even trust everything you see with your own eyes. You know, I saw a while back dove that, that what they make soap or something i don't know the you know pro, beauty products and they they had this this spot called evolution and it was taking the the, the woman the model who's sitting there and they, they get her photo and then you know they, they speed the thing up and they show on the computer screen everything that they do to her to make her eyes a little bigger and clean up all the blemishes and, and get out any little wrinkles and, and all the hair and any little pores they cover over. And it's just hours and hours of, of computer cleaning up this model's face until finally as they stretched out her eyes and cleaned up her face and lengthened her neck. And then the last picture is to show her beautiful, stunning face on this billboard. You see it with your eyes and it's not even real. It's a woman who's been altered to fit some completely unrealistic standard of what is supposed to be beautiful. But the word of God is always and entirely true, firmly fixed in the heavens so it doesn't move. No limit to its perfection so it's not corrupt. It endures forever, which means it does not wear out. We need to hear what is true, what is true about yourself, what is true about others, what is true about the world, what is true about the future, about the past, about the good life, about God. And if you want to know that, you need to come to the word of God. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. So what does he believe? He believes the word is true. Also, he believes the word demands what is right. Look at verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. They're righteous. Verse 86, all your commandments are sure. Verse 128, therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. Verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Now, notice the psalmist does not say, well, I come to your rules and, you know, I don't I don't like them, but they're in there. And so I'll believe it. Now, I find Christians who say this and let, let me be clear. I think that may be a a step 
in the process of mature discipleship. Because I've met some people sometimes, they don't like what the Bible says about heaven or hell. They don't like what the Bible says about uh, marriage or any number of things, but they sort of, I haven't gotten to the place where I like it, but I'll accept it because God says it. Now, that's commendable as a step. It's commendable to say my, my, my heart, my feelings aren't there yet. My head might even be there, but I submit myself to it. But I would suggest to you, from God's word, and that's not where God wants us to stay. It's admirable in one sense to submit yourself to the word, even when it seems like a bad word. But the psalmist gives us an example of going one giant step farther. He considers all the rules to be righteous. He understands God is not laying down arbitrary commands. He does not issue orders in hopes that, you know, We'll just sort of walk through his, his traps and we'll be tangled and miserable and we'll have a, a really rotten sort of life. But, you know, we did it God's way. He never demands what is impure, unloving or unwise. His commands are not cruel and unusual punishment. They are always noble, always just, always righteous, even if they are often hard. His word demands what is right. His word provides what is good. Look at the very beginning of this psalm. Blameless are those whose way is blameless, or blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Blessed, that is, congratulations is maybe the best translation. Happy are those On the right path are those. This is the way of the good life. Verse 6, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. God's word provides what is good, the right path, the right step, the right counsel. They provide wisdom. Look over to verse 98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. As God's people, we may not always be the smartest people, but we ought to be the wisest. You may have people around you who say, you, you, may, you may have studied more, you may have more degrees, you may read more, you may have been given a gift of a greater intellect and a greater IQ. But the psalmist says, I'm wiser than all my teachers and all my enemies. I'm sure we all know people who are exceedingly brilliant in the things of the world, and you would not trust them to oversee anything because they're utterly foolish in the things of God, and vice versa, people who have very little education, and yet there is a deep sense of wisdom, that they know how to talk to people, they know what is right, they're not well-read, they don't have an expansive vocabulary, but they are deeply, richly wise. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And as you probably thought about that famous verse before, what's implied is that 
God does not give us everything we might want to know, but he tells us everything we need to know, everything we need for our next step, a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I have a light so that I know what next step to take in obedience to him. What do you believe about God's word? What are you absolutely convinced of? A child may think his parents are true, but, well, the rules are not right and they may not really want what is best for me. And a child just sort of submits at times. Maybe your children do. Um, If so, let me know even though they don't think it's what is best. An athlete may be convinced that the coach's rules are always right, but he knows the coach is not infallible. You may think your best friend is on your side and is always for you, but you don't trust that she gets everything right or her advice is always wise. But the Bible has no soft underbelly. It can be trusted in every way to speak what is true, to command what is right, and to provide what is utterly and always good. That's what we believe about God's Word. Second big category here. That's what we believe. What do we feel? Well, we see that the psalmist delights in God's Word. Look at verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight... As much as in all riches. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. You'd notice the emotive language. Look at verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Verse 129, your testimonies are are wonderful. Do you hear the language of affections? He can hardly talk about God's word without describing it as sweet, a joy, wonderful. Now you may say, well, I don't really like reading. I'm not a smarty pants type. I don't listen to sermons on my iPhone all the time. I don't read books for fun. How am I going to delight in God's Word? I was just talking to my kids. My my kids are, they are the run around outside, climb up onto the roof of our house sort of children. My son shimmies up the gutters and is up on the roof. This happens often. It's sun. You're making me look like a really bad parent. (laughs) And then I see him on the roof and I'm like, we'll take the leaves out of the gutters while you're up there. (laughs) Well, it helps. I have, I have friends who say, you know, what, what do you think, pastor? All, all my kids want to do is read. How can I get them to go and play? You're asking the wrong pastor. (laughs) My kids want to play outside and they want to grab an iPad because they have an iPad because we're bad parents and all that. They do all that stuff. Uh, So they're not the, you know, I just sit in my chair and I just love to read and read, read, read. Bright kids, I guess. I don't like to read. So I was talking to them as they grow and try to follow Jesus and saying that that's what it means to be a Christian. You, You know how to read. And when you love Christ, you, you love his word. And I told them, you know, 
Now, I, I love to read all the time. I never liked reading. I was a fine student, but I didn't like reading. It all seemed you know, boring unless I could find a big book on dinosaurs or something. I just didn't, didn't want to read, wasn't into it. You may still be like that. You think, well, how can I really delight in God's word? I'm not a book person. I'm not a reading person. But listen, think about it. When do we delight to hear someone speak? When do we delight to read something on the page? You would delight in it if you were curious what it said. You would delight if you thought there was great benefit in hearing this. If it was a letter about some inheritance of millions of pounds that you had, you would read it. If you thought that what was contained on the page could prevent great danger, the doctor said, I prescribe you this medicine, but you must read. I'm telling you, read this sheet of instructions or you could kill yourself. You would read it. You would probably read something if you thought it was all about you. A kind of Jeff Perswell introduction or something. You would read something if it was about someone you loved. If a, if a teacher sent home with your child um, a write-up that just said, here's two full pages. I want to tell you what a great job your daughter is doing in school. She's great at this, great. You, you would savor it. You would pour over every word. Now think, everything I just said can be said about the Bible. Are you not curious what it reveals to you about God, about the world, about yourself? Don't you believe that in reading it, there is great benefit to yourself? Don't you believe that in reading it, it prevents you from great danger? Don't you know that the Bible, in one sense, is all about you and revealing your heart and your character? And the Bible is ultimately about someone you love. It's about Christ. The psalmist knew what he could find in God's word, and so he delighted in it. In fact, over and over, the psalmist professes his love for the commands and the testimonies of God. Look at verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. Or verse 167. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Law. Testimonies. Now, the flip side of this delight is that the psalmist experienced great indignation when God's word was not delighted in. Look at some of these verses. Go to verse 53. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 139. Zeal consumes me. Because foes forget your words. 158, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. That language may even seem harsh to us. But that is a testimony, friends, not to how much we love people, but how little we treasure the word of God. Because we all get indignant when someone else fails to see the beauty we behold. We all get indignant when someone else fails to see the beauty we behold. Men, if someone would, came to you and was telling you, what a wretchedly miserable, vile, ugly, despicable life you had. 
Would we think it was some measure of your character and tolerance to just smile and say everyone's entitled to their own opinion? (laughs) No, we would think you less of a man for doing so. We would think you more of a godly man with godly character if you responded to such a put down with disgust, tears, Can you not see what I see, the beauty that I see, that God has given me eyes to see? You think of an art museum. You think of your children. Think of whatever you consider to be precious and beautiful and good. You are indignant when someone cannot see what you see. Extreme delight in someone or something naturally leads to extreme disgust when others consider that person or that thing not worthy of their delight. Do we ever weep because God's word is disobeyed? They weep to say, oh, Lord, you feel bad for them. And you you weep, you shed streams of tears, the psalmist says, because of how little it shows their regard for God. You cannot love God and hate his commandments because every commandment from God is a reflection of his character. It says something about who he is, what he values, his worth. And so if you love me, Jesus says, what? If you love me, You'll always have a feeling of euphoria in your heart. If you love me, you will raise your hands and worship. If you love me, you'll never raise your hands and worship. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because to keep a commandment is to signify that I love you and I believe that what you're telling me is righteous and good and I delight in it because it is a reflection of the one in whom I have all delight. He delights in God's word. He desires God's word. I count at least six times the psalmist expresses his longing to keep the commandments of God. For example, verse 5 Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Or verse 20 My soul is consumed with longing for your rules. Parents, how many of you have ever had a child say that to you? I am consumed with longing for your rules, Mom. <laughs> Please speak to me. Your testimonies are my delight. (laughs) I have seen wonderful things in your laws, Dad. (laughs) It's ridiculous on a human level, but not on a supernatural working of the Spirit in our hearts. I count at least 14 times the psalmist expresses a desire to know and understand the Word of God. For example, verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. Verse 29, put false ways far from me. Graciously teach me your law. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord. 34, give me understanding. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments. It's true for every single one of us. Our lives are animated by desire. It's what gets you up. It's what you think about when you lie awake. Desire is what we dream about, pray about. And there are all sorts of desires for relationship, for children, for grandchildren, for job, promotion, opportunity, health, house, vacation, victories, revenge, recognition. Some are good desires. Some are bad. 
Almost all can become idolatrous. But in that jumble of desires in your heart, do you have this desire? Do I have this desire? To know, to understand, and to keep the word of God. When you wake up, you think today is a day when I want to know and understand and keep the word of God. Are you planning your worship services so that as the people gather on Sunday, today is a day when anyone who listens here with a good heart will be able to know and keep and understand the word of God. The psalmist so desired the word, he considered suffering to be a blessing if it helped him become more obedient to God's word. You see, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Even as I read those things, I think, Lord, I don't even know if I mean them. I want to. That it would be good to be afflicted if in the end it would cause you to cherish and desire and obey God's word. He desires the word. He delights in the word. He depends upon the word. You see verse 31. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. He's desperate for the word. Verse 50. This is my comfort in affliction that your promise gives me life. He needs it. You ever notice in the book of Amos? It's like many of the minor prophets. God's really ticked at his people. Minor prophets are, are like covenant lawyers, and they're coming and saying, you, you broke the covenant here, 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 and there was a contract and a covenant, and so this is going to happen, and this, and this, and this. And, and Amos goes through, and chapter after chapter unfolds all of the disasters that will befall God's people, and you will have blight and mildew, and you will have pestilence, and you will have sword, and you will have disease. And then we get to the end in chapter 8. And we get to the greatest calamity. He said, you will have a famine of the hearing of the word of God. I hope as you are praying for your country, that was one of your prayers. Lord, may it not be so that we would have a famine of the hearing of God's word. There is no greater judgment that can fall upon a people than that God would say, you don't want my word. You've had it long enough. You have all those Bibles, all that knowledge. You don't want it. You don't hear it. You don't need it. I will take it and give it to someone who does. The psalmist knows that he needs God's word. Psalm 160 or verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in all of your words. Do you see the contrast there? Princes persecute me without cause. You've got a government, you've got a state persecuting you. The psalmist says, I'm, I'm not in awe of them. Yeah, yeah, they persecute me. I'm not in awe of princes. I'm not in awe of parliament. I'm not in awe of presidents. I'm in awe of your word. Eh, they can do what they do. What I consider to be awesome is your word. That's what the psalmist feels. I want very briefly just to look at what he does. So what he believes, what he feels, he desires, he delights, he depends upon it. Now, what does he do? What do we do? 
What bursts forth when, when you have in your soul, like a, a geyser, all this pressure, you've got all this faith in God's word, you've got all this feeling in God's word, what's going to burst out in action in your life? Look at verse 172. My tongue will sing of your word. Look at verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. Verse 8, I will keep or I will obey your statutes. Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart. Verse 58, I entreat your favor. That is, I pray to you, O God. We could go on and on. I could give you multiple verses for each of those. But did you see there in that list? I count seven things that the Lord, that the psalmist does in response to God's word. He sings, he speaks, he studies, he stores up, he obeys, he praises, and he prays. Sing, speak, study, store up, obey, praise, and pray. That's what he does. That's your life. That's your worship service, isn't it? If, if you're putting your worship service together and you've got a whole bunch of other stuff besides this, what are you doing? <laughs> the, the theme in this message as given to me was gathering around the word. And the psalmist gives us the spirit-inspired response when we are gathered around God's word. You sing it. You speak it, you study it, you store it up, you obey it, you praise God for it, and you pray with it. Those are the seven points of application in your life, and those are, I think, a pretty good list of what you're going to do when you plan out your services to gather around the Word. These actions are not only the best indicator of what you really feel and believe individually about the Word, but what you feel and believe corporately about the Word. Your worship services are reflecting to people what you really believe and feel about God's Word. You may have a statement of faith and it's somewhere on your website or it's somewhere up gathering dust in some attic and it's there and it talks about how everything's inerrant and inspired and you got this great, wonderful statement of the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, good. Worship. Better. That, that's what's going to tell your people. Do your people get the sense that your complete confidence is in the Word of God, to do the work of God? Do they see in what you do in your worship services that you are constrained with the freedom of Scripture? And I use those two words very deliberately because we're constrained with a freedom that we find in the Bible. You're going to sing it. You're going to speak it. You're going to study it, store it up, obey, praise, and pray. If you do these things... You probably believe and feel what the psalmist does, even if you haven't known quite how to articulate it and you haven't read Bavink and you haven't read Packer, but if this is what you're doing, it's probably indicative of a belief and a feeling that's pretty good. And on the other hand, if you don't do these things, 
you have to wonder, what do you really feel about God's word? What do you really believe? If I'm not doing these things, I need to look at how I feel about Scripture. And if I'm not experiencing any delight or desire or dependence relative to the Word of God, I have to go back to what I believe. What you feel about the Word and believe about the Word are absolutely crucial, if for no other reason than that they will manifest themselves in what you do with the Word. And let me just say in closing that not only does your attitude toward the word manifest itself in what you do with it, what you worship and how you gather, but it does reflect, I believe, what you feel and what you believe about Jesus. Okay, when are we going to get to Jesus here? Because Christ believed unequivocally all that was written in the scriptures. There was no one who had such delight, such desire and dependence upon the word as Jesus. Even more than the psalmist. What did Jesus do when tempted by the devil in the wilderness? He quoted Deuteronomy to the devil. They didn't know zap out lightning bolts or you know, do the, the emperor thing from Star Wars. And, and you know, I'm just going to, there you go, devil. You know, he didn't, you know, call up Gryffindor or something and, you know, do some kind of spell He quotes the Bible. The Son of Man quotes the Bible. If we don't have that belief, how can we say we are his disciples? The New Testament teaches that Jesus is the word made flesh, which means that all the attributes of God's verbal revelation, his truth, righteousness, power, veracity, wisdom, and omniscience will be found in the person of Christ. All that the psalmist believed and felt about the words of God is all that we should feel and believe about the word of God incarnate. Our desire, our delight, and our dependence on the words of Scripture do not grow inversely with our desire, delight, and dependence upon Jesus Christ. They grow proportionally. One cannot ascend without the other. You cannot know this Christ apart from his word. And if you are truly desiring and delighting in this word, how could you not also be led to desire and delight in this Christ? The most mature Christians thrill to hear every love poem that speaks about the word made flesh and every love poem that celebrates the word made scripture, both growing together in our affections, not because they need to grow, but because we have to grow up. And as we do, we will see it take root and manifest in fruit in our lives, and they will be the center of all that we do when we gather around the Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the Scriptures which teach us, which illumine us, which give us Light, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So may it be clear in our lives, may it be clear every Sunday in our services that we have exalted with you your name and your word. In Christ, the living word, we pray. Amen.